This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So, you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall, rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So, whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This is Joseph L. Flatley, and you are listening to Failed State Update. I uh, got a pretty good episode for you today. I speak to uh, Mike Elk, a labor reporter based in Pittsburgh and grew up in Pittsburgh. You know, I was aware of Mike Elk for a long time. You know, I'd seen his bylines, definitely saw his reporting at The Guardian and a couple other places. But when I first noticed him, in in October 2018, in the Tree of Life massacre, I was with the scrum of reporters that was kind of at a staging area a few blocks away from the synagogue waiting. You know, it was was a crazy moment. There were uh, militarized police. They looked like we were on the streets of Fallujah walking past, back and forth. And, you know, every once in a while, like... The uh, Allegheny County safety official or, uh, you know, even Governor Wolf came out at one point to address the press. And we were just waiting to find out what happened amidst this unimaginable heaviness, this, you know, knowledge that hung in the air of 11 lives lost because of this conspiracy filled hate monger. Eventually, we uh, learned that Robert Gregory Bowers, who was uh, 46 years old at the time, had rushed into synagogue first thing in the morning and ended up killing 11 people and injuring six others. It was an emotionally fraught time. And um, while we're working this kind of gross uh, uh, conserva pundit named Selena Zia, Zito, Selena Zito, that uh, you might know from the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, or I believe now she's like a Fox person. And you know, there was this period of time when everybody in the media was looking for their Trump whisperers or Trump voter whisperers, where you know you would see her quite a bit on CNN. Uh, I think she's still at the New York Post as a columnist. I don't know. I really don't pay much attention to the woman. Her work is gross, and I know she's been uh, accused of plagiarism, so that's kind of the level of journalism we're looking at here. But anyways, you know, Mike Elk was there, and he grew up in the neighborhood. He was suitably upset, and he just, he let her have it. He just, just balled her out. It's kind of like Trump's president. You know, we've been enduring years of uh, conspiracy theories. The man at the White House is definitely causing, is is definitely, you know, ratcheting up the, the tension, the heat. Hate crimes are happening all over the place. So to see, you know, the local embodiment of uh, the conservative movement walk in, you know, walk into the scene, which must have been pretty upsetting to him. And he let her have it. And, um... She initially cowered. She walked away. And then I think she realized she had a potential viral moment. So she came back with her phone camera on and basically like started him back up. And then, you know, there was fallout from that. But, you know, I just thought the guy was in the right. And I just, you know, I like to see somebody sticking up for themselves, which we don't see enough of. So, so that was my introduction to the personality, the Pittsburgh personality that is Mike Elk, and um, we've been kind of in touch since then um, on Twitter, and eventually got around to speaking with him in the tail end of January 2021, and we spoke about his work and the importance of labor reporting, and talked about his website, The Payday Report, which is a labor-focused independent journalism site. It's an outlet that not only looks at management, but it actually looks out for the workers, even in the case that the unions themselves are misbehaving. So he kind of gets flack from both sides, and um, and he does important work. As soon as I hit play, you're, you're going to hear 
how he got started and where you can find his work and how you can support him. So here's Mike Elk. up here in pittsburgh uh in the you know the 90s here uh right right around swissville when a lot of the mills were uh are closing here uh, my dad used to be a union rep uh, down at union switch and signal uh, which is now edgewood town center right there in uh swissville and i grew up all my life surrounded by people in my dad's union the ue um which was a pretty remarkable union uh in so many ways uh you know the ue uh in in the late 40s uh, there was a split uh, in the AFL-CIO. They wanted to merge the CIO and the AFL together. But in order to do so, uh, the CIO said, you know, we're not going to let any unions that won't cooperate with McCarthyism into the AFL-CIO. Uh, and my dad's union was one of those unions that refused to go along with the Red Scare. And as a result, uh, over the next uh, decade and a half, there was this wild warfare between, uh, you know, much more conservative business unions uh, like the Steelworkers and the IBW and unions like the UE and the Farm Workers Union uh, and, and other unions like that. And the people I grew up around were old school folks who had battled both McCarthyism and often the mob at the same time. So I come out of a place uh, where, you know, people were very determined to run uh, rank and file union democracy. Uh, my father's union They've always capped the salary at, you know, set by the membership at an average of what the membership is making. So nobody in my father's union, where my father's still an officer today, makes above 65000 That is not the majority of the labor movement, however, is um, those kind of folks. You know, unions are huge bureaucracies. They're multi-billion dollar institutions. Many of them have their own pension funds. Many of them have tons of real estate that they own. Um, and so what winds up happening so often in unions is they become – just another bureaucracy. Uh, they don't really engage their members in real training. They don't really engage their members in real political education. They treat their membership uh, like, you know, their union is an insurance policy that they can call occasionally. And like any insurance policy or anybody who's ever dealt with a lawyer, uh, that's not a very good way to do things. Right, right. Um, and so my perspective on organized labor came out of that. And when I was in uh, high school, I started writing for some local papers around here. I would hang out with the guys that worked on the union newsletter at the UE a lot. And I was always very driven uh, since my teenage years to cover the movement. Uh, and I've spent, God, almost the last 20 years covering unions and the last 14 years covering unions professionally. Uh, and it's been interesting. It's been interesting watching the beat grow. As you know, the top uh, 25 newspapers, only 10 of them have labor reporters, and that number might be a little bit outdated. Mm -hmm. I probably could count, um, you know, maybe three or four dozen folks that might consider themselves labor reporters across the country, maybe a little bit more if you consider general economics. But in general, we don't see much of labor being told from the perspective of workers. Mm -hmm. We do often see, in my experience, sometimes often in the left press, you know, in the left press now, I mean, if you're working for some of these big outlets like Jacobin, you know, which has a multi-million dollar budget, you know, if you're working in a place like Jacobin, they're going to pay you $100, $150 a story. Only rich kids can afford to do that. And as the irony is that we have so much of labor's story being told by rich kids. <laughs> and that really, I think, dilutes the way that we talk about it. Uh, you always see these big articles. I, I saw this during the GM strike. I saw articles in The Nation. I saw articles on the opinion page of The New York Times. I saw articles in Teen Vogue where – they didn't even quote workers. <laughs> they wrote about the GM strike without quoting workers. And if they mentioned workers, it was like, oh, these cute little workers over there. You know, they have these picket signs. And it was cool. We went out to a real picket line. You know, I went out to Ohio once. And so you have a labor beat that's, that's run heavily out of the left press where people are getting underpaid, largely run by rich kids. And then the people that aren't rich kids often have some other source of salary subsidized. It. They might be grad students. Or quite often they're union organizers. And when you have folks that are union organizers and grad students and people not making enough money, that is a recipe for disaster, uh, as we see, because 
so often what happens, and I've seen this with several people, is they come out with these books, and then they go around to a bunch of unions, and the unions help them sell the books. And then they never write anything critically of unions. And then a number of large publications take money from unions, right? So we don't really have much labor journalism in this country that is really told from the perspective of workers. And, and I, I don't mean, hey, I'm talking in, on behalf of a worker. I mean, you wrote a story where you're quoting workers and the story is driven by the voices of workers. And that story can be messy. It can be complicated. It's not necessarily what the union PR person wants you to do. And, and as a result, I mean, it's drastic. You know, one of the issues I've been very passionate about is taking on sexual misconduct in the labor movement. Uh, and a big reason for that is because of my experience talking to women who felt turned away from the labor movement. But what was worse is they felt turned away even by left labor reporters, even by some female labor reporters who didn't want to touch it. Uh, because there's a sort of, um, there's a code of silence in labor about problems where, where people are told, oh, well, you know, if we bring this up publicly, we will give ammunition to union busters. You know, and it becomes this very top down. So you have a labor beat being largely written about by folks uh, that are, are pretty well off or, or might even be on the payroll of unions often or are getting money from unions in other ways. And you see these problems persist and persist and persist again. And what's different about Payday Report is Payday Report is directly funded by readers. Uh, you know, 85% of our $100,000 budget, uh, it comes from readers. And we get some small grants, but nothing too major. And that allows us to do pretty much whatever the fuck we want to do. <laughs> yeah, and you know, you're definitely filling a need in a couple areas, not only the type of labor reporting that needs to be done that nobody else is doing, but it's just a bad time for journalism and journalists all around. And, um, you know, I think it's pretty exciting to see a an outlet such as yourself that's really grassroots and... How did you end up starting the website? I had this dream for a while. I'd been laid off, and I had this dream of maybe doing some crowdfunding to start a project. I had done some crowdfunding for some travel projects, and I had done some crowdfunding when I got laid off. And we had made quite a bit of money, and I had developed a bit of a list. Um, and then I worked at Politico, and I was union organizing there, and I was fired illegally. And I won $70,000, which was great. <laughs> You know, at, at age 29 to all of a sudden, you know, I, I used to go to parties and people say, what would you do? And I said, I'm independent. <laughs> I mean, that was a joke. Not that wealthy, but it felt that way. You know, I didn't have to go into work or anything like that. Um, and a buddy said, you know, I could design you a website. You should really do this because I had enough money in the bank. And we designed a website and we started going out to places. You know, I moved down to Chattanooga. And I spent several years in the South, roaming the South, and we were doing stories in news deserts, stories that nobody else uh, was doing. And in our first year in business, we raised $35,000 directly off of our readers, you know, with the average contribution being about $32 a year. I mean, $32 a hit. And what it was is that we were doing labor reporting in a way that nobody else was doing it and going places nobody else was going. And, and people also, I think, really were driven to the message of let's build our own publications, you know. We complain so much about the corporate media, and it's terrible. And, and the left press, in some ways, is even worse sometimes. <laughs> you know, it can be so intellectual, uh, totally divorced from, from the lives of most workers. If, you know, the labor movement and labor reporting isn't kind of like concentrated focused on the actual workforce and working conditions, um, I think it can go in a lot of areas that are just kind of extraneous, you know, it can, there, you know, it, it has to be centered on like the people on the factory floor, you know, or in the warehouse or wherever. Um, and then, you know, if people just kind of opt in, you know, get come at it through like an academic background or whatever they can opt out you know they don't have any you know to to build a movement you need people that have 
real stakes in, in the whole thing. Well, I mean, I think we have a real problem in the labor press. Of, I mean, we, we, we used to call them trots, right? Uh-huh. As in Trotskyists, mm-hmm. which is part of the theory was you could have this vanguard of intellectual elite and they could mobilize the proletariat. So you have these kids. They grew up in Republican households. They grew up with Republican values. They, they treat people the way Republicans do. <laughs> it's very my way or the highway. And then they go to college and boom, they get religion and they read all these books and then they go out and they start lecturing workers about these books and it's just not very effective (laughs) and it's part of the reason i think the left press struggles and i think what we've shown is yeah you can go out to workers if you write about workers and you tell stories actually from their perspective workers will give you money to do that corporations and the corporate media have done such a number on Americans over the last 50 or however many years that it's almost like you got to kind of like go back to basics and really be like an outfit such as yourself just reintroducing journalism into the lives of the people in in labor and the idea of a labor movement. I've worked so many jobs that were not journalism in a lot of these shops like the union is the farthest thing from their mind, especially if they're not in sectors that are traditionally, you know, some of these outliers or places like Amazon, you know, and like people don't ex- think about unions or expect to have a union. And obviously that's changing. Um, but, you know, it's like it's like we're starting at square one in a lot of ways, even still in 2021. Yeah, I mean, it very much feels that way. But the good news is there's been a big revival in interest in unions, um, in part because of, you know, I think, uh, you know, the fight for 15 obviously sparked a lot of interest in the $15 an hour movement. The teacher strikes uh, played a big role in showing uh, how much support unions can get for taking wildcat strike actions. Uh, And, you know, I covered those. I was uh, there the first day in West Virginia. You know, I had been a a permalancer forever at The Guardian, you know, making $30,000 a year, basically on call for The Guardian working-class guy in the middle of the country, right? Uh, and I remember going to The Guardian and saying, hey, you know, there's going to be this big West Virginia teacher strike. It's going to be a big deal. And they were like, hey, you know, is it really going to be that big of a deal? And finally, I had to say to them, I had to say, look, I live in Pittsburgh. I'm 45 minutes from the West Virginia border. I will drive and drive back, and I won't even expense the gas. And, you know, then later they were like, wow, this is great. We beat the New York Times by five hours on this whole West Virginia teacher strike thing. Um, And, you know, that was definitely that. But what we've seen recently uh, is a massive strike wave since the beginning of COVID. The one thing I I think that makes covering labor so tough is that it happens in so many individual workplaces, right? Mm -hmm. It's tough to see big aggregate trends. So at the beginning of COVID, we were like, wow, there's an unprecedented number of strikes happening around the country. Let's track them, right? And since March 1st, we have tracked over 1,200 strikes happening across the country. That's the number of strikes since 1946. Highest number of strikes since 1946. Wow. Yeah. And we're seeing a lot of them do, uh, particularly in education and in medical care. Mm Mm-hmm. We're seeing them because of a lack of of safety conditions. But now what we're starting to, and so we're seeing people just walk out, especially at the beginning of COVID, walk out. But what we saw that was interesting is we were tracking the strike wave, tracking the strike wave. And between March 1st and June 1st, there was 270 strikes. And then George Floyd got killed. And in the month of June, you had over 500 strikes. And the way we define a strike is, is there a work stoppage somewhere? Physical location. Can we name a location? Because a lot of these strikes aren't being called by unions, right? They're they're being called sometimes by community groups. And I think this has really made labor academics, labor intellectuals confused, particularly since they're so fucking white. I mean, no, I'm being serious. No, no, totally. It's just, no, that's perfect. Um, so, So where's the confusion? The, uh... Well, let's talk about what happened in some cities is that, take, for instance, Seattle. Seattle Black Lives Matter put out a call for a general strike. Mm-hmm. The AFL-CIO in Seattle said no. Mm-hmm. 
So what happened is 250 businesses closed in one day in Seattle. Wow. Now, a lot of those closed because the workers got management to do it. And some businesses, yeah, you know, there were coffee shop owners, they were black small business owners, they were that closed in solidarity. But at the end of the day, it was the call to action from a workers group, Black Lives Matter Seattle, uh, that led to it. And now the trots came out and said, oh, well, that's not real, you know. <laughs> Identity politics can be co-opted, right? I mean, it's so fucking racist, it's absurd. Yeah. Because the thing about it we know is that African Americans are twice as likely to be as supportive of unions as white Americans. Opinion polling shows us. And the reason for that is that you know, white folks always think they can be the boss. Yeah. <laughs> well, we are the That's like the American, classic American problem, like not recognizing that we have a class system and everybody thinks, secretly thinks that they're Bill Gates. So so why, yeah. so why, why unionize? Why fight management? Yeah, I mean, why do any of that? Whereas, you know, folks from communities of color are often put in situations in non-union workplaces where racist things will happen, where other things will happen, and they'll form other networks of solidarity. And so it didn't surprise me that all of a sudden you saw 500 strikes in one month. You saw the ports shut down on the east and the west coast. You saw GM shut down for uh, you know an hour. You saw tons of little actions in Chattanooga. You saw 44 businesses shut down. Now, these weren't called by unions. You didn't see Trump going out there saying, let's have a general strike or anything like that. Um, you did see um, the Fight for 15 doing this in some places, in some fast food places. Um, and then fast forward to the end of the summer, right? Uh, you had the NBA strikes. <laughs> huge. I mean, I'm a big sports guy. I'm a huge sports guy. Uh and I watched like ESPN because what happened is, you know, NBA went out and then, uh, you know, baseball went out, which was incredible. Although the Buckos didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Come on, guys. Yeah, I know. They were one of like six teams that didn't go. And then the NHL even went on strike, you know, the whitest sport in the world. <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, wow. Wow, you know, the professional sports leagues are out. Like, I was watching ESPN, and all day long on ESPN, it was a message about racial solidarity and, and using strike as a way to get solidarity, right? And I was like, wow, you know, there's going to be a huge ripple effect, you know? Like, like we saw at the beginning of the summer with George Floyd. What happened? No labor leaders decided to put the, you know, the pedal of the metal so we didn't see a big ripple effect from that. We didn't, you know, from our measurements, see a big uptick. And instead, you know, what we did see over the summer is somebody actually wrote an article saying, are these strikes that they're tracking real strikes? Wow. Who wrote that? This, or like, what, uh, where did that appear? I, I hesitate to say his name. A guy by the name of Chris Brooks, who you want to talk about somebody who came out of a Republican background. I mean, this is a guy who was a, came out of the evangelical church as a youth pastor, and then he realized he could make better money preaching Marx. <laughs> and, you know, this is a guy based in Brooklyn, and he works for our union. And, and he wrote this, and the AFL-CIO actually circulated it around <laughs> on social media. So you're in the middle of a big strike wave, and they're sitting there saying, well, you know, it's not a strike unless we say it's a strike. And what is that impulse? Is that power? Is that not wanting to make waves and keep playing the game as a you know, essentially like a corporate entity itself, you know, or what he was arguing. And, and you know, this is a white evangelical turned hipster, Brooklyn hipster. There's several <laughs> Sarah Jones as well. I mean, it's incredible to me that somebody like Sarah Jones can write anti-Semitic homophobic articles as a teen, you know, columnist. And then somehow, you know, that's acceptable later on. Uh, he, he wrote this uh, piece and what he was arguing was, well, you know, so many corporations want to look like they're doing well by race. So if a corporation closes in solidarity, that's not really worker action. No employer ever wants to shut down production, ever wants to lose. You know, employers are responding to workers in the streets. And in some of these instances, like in Seattle, where you saw 250 businesses close, 
You don't want to be the employer that doesn't close. You don't want to get boycotted. You don't want to get looted. You don't want to bad PR. And so, yeah, our argument, this was a call to action. This wasn't like the Chamber of Commerce got together and said, let's lose money for a day. That wasn't what happened. They felt public pressure to do that. And so it's a very racist, um, you know, there's a school of thought. It's called class reductionism, right? Which is, let's reject intersectionality. You know, Jacobin, uh, the, the terrible publication, uh, famously once told a, a woman I knew who was a woman of color, you know, you can't use the word intersectionality in our public. We don't believe in it, right? It's, it's a divisive word. You know, it's divisive. Um, you know, people organize around class issues, and we can bring people together by organizing around class issues. And as someone who's dealt with, you know, a disability, I'm autistic, mom, I, I always thought that was bullshit. <laughs> you know, as an autistic, a leftist will mock you as an autistic the same that a right-winger will. <laughs> You know, these issues, they intersect. Systems of oppression intersect. And they, you know, you have to take them all on. You have to really say, my liberation is caught up in yours and whatever system that is. And so the thing about it is, you know, if you have a system of labor intellectuals and professional union staffers, they want control. And, you know, the Black Lives Matter system strikes that wasn't something they could control. Uh, famously, the AFL-CIO was burned. The lobby of the AFL-CIO was burned at one point during this. And it was burned because of the AFL-CIO's support of police unions. There was a ton of graffiti left saying, you know, this is about police unions. And so, you know, a lot of people in unions tried to play this off of, oh, well, this was just, uh, this was some uh, right-wing element that snuck into the AFL-CIO and burned it. I knew people that were there, that wasn't what was happening, you know? And, and, and that's part of the issue is that unions are a power structure in and of themselves. Not union, so many unions aren't shaped like the UE. I mean, you look at a lot of these union leaders, somebody like a, a Chris Brooks, they're making like $100,000 a year. Now, I was always taught growing up in UE uh, that union staffers uh, should feel like a union member, not feel for a member. <laughs> that's very different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, going back quickly to talking about the strikes in Seattle and, you know, the businesses closing, you know, it's it strikes me as, you know, like when that happens, it's obvious that it happens because it's kind of like a safety valve for the companies, the businesses close. They don't want to close, like you said. They're going to lose a day's worth of work. But if they close, you know, it kind of like, brings the temperature down a little bit and their employees, they can go back to work the next day. But it seems to me like a smart labor movement could take that wedge and expand it, you know, create more strikes, more, take more power, you know, because of that action. And it's just absurd to me that nobody took that opportunity. Because there's such a defensive mentality of organized labor because it's been under attack for so long that, you know, organized labor is so focused on, you know, we're in this contract struggle and we haven't really taught our members how to run the contract struggle themselves. So we have to send a union staffer out there, which means money, right? You know, if we can't figure out, if we can't fully map something out and figure out all the equations of it, we don't want to do it. And Chris Brooks is, is one of the biggest assholes when it comes to this stuff, right? Uh, you know, I've, I've dealt with him over the years. You know, he wrote this whole piece, um, Chattanooga. I, I lived in Chattanooga for a while, and I've covered two close failed union elections where they lost um, each time by a couple dozen votes in a plant of about 2,000 people. And the second time was very interesting. They lost by only 20 votes or so. Um, because what was interesting is the union drive, union organizers said, well, they went a little too quick. They, they should have taken more time to prepare. They should have done all these other things to prepare. And they were trying to do those things. Um, but what was interesting, I, I thought always in Brooks' analysis, because he wrote this 4,000-word analysis. They lost the union election, and boom, within 20 minutes of the announcement, there was a pre-written article on Labor Notes' website. And granted, Labor Notes is funded by some, you know, trot unions, I would call them, very left you know, top-down, supposed leftists. And um, uh, 
and and you know it was saying it was pre-written it quoted well, two sentences and it quoted a worker <laughs> it was all about here's how i would have run the union election different and so there's a whole life within inside organized labor where it was like okay well the uaw is corrupt but what had actually happened there was right before christmas and this election was in january this was um 2019 right before christmas in 2018 the workers, all of a sudden, it was announced that there was a paid time off change. They were going to get less paid time off. And so the workers decided to shut down production on the door assembly line. And, and about, you know, 30 of them marched on the boss and they shut down production for, for an hour or two. And this was huge. But if you read this Labor Notes article, that event never occurred. It's not even mentioned. So the workers had this wildcat strike, and then they pushed the union to hold an election because they won something, right? And they figured, we won something, let's do it now. And they came up very, very short under very intense, uh, you know, atmosphere. Um, and, you know, I saw it as, as a path forward. And instead, you know, if you read somebody like Brooks, who was a union staffer, who's still a union staffer and has always written that way, um, you know, what it is, is competing factions. It's not about the workers. It's about my group, my, my, my truck group, my interest group of labor intellectuals. If we were in charge, we would win. <laughs> Instead of about, okay, what kind of power did those workers build, right? They had a wildcat for the first time ever in the decade history of this plant. People don't forget that they won something that way. People don't forget that management sold them all these lies and they narrowly lost still organizing they're still fighting and so so often i think because we have so many labor intellectuals because we have so many grad students because we have so many union staffers writing stuff and the folks that aren't you know even if you look at some of the big names you know they you know here's what happens on the labor beat is you want an article to go viral unions have giant social media accounts they can do that you play ball with them you don't screw around in their business they'll do that no okay some of these trots, they, they'll, they'll screw around with a corrupt union like the UAW, which, you know, a lot of the top officers are going to jail because of bribery scandal. You know, but they, they won't touch, they won't raise questions about, okay, you know, who's Sarah Nelson? What, what's her real track record, right? Why did, you know, push out one of the founders of Mahente, you know, Rafa Navarre from CWA? You know, why does she do these, you know, sometimes, you know, praise, you know, the CEO of United? You know, why, you know. Those kind of questions are never asked. The, you know, reporters are supposed to be a fourth estate. You know, sure, I'm a leftist, I guess. I, I would consider myself more of a yinzer than a leftist. <laughs> but, uh, you know, my job, though, is to tell the truth. I believe the truth's on our side. And that's not always messy. And quite frankly, you know, we've written uh, 31 articles on sexual misconduct. We've gotten three men fired. We provided a lot of evidence that helped a woman, Mindy Sturge, get a settlement. And, you know, we had a big expose uh, in the New York Times uh, where the New York Times referred to me as someone, uh, Ben Smith of the New York Times referred to me as someone who was an abrasive gadfly for my role in taking on sexual misconduct. All these folks know that are big time writers. All these folks know that sexual misconduct is going on all the time in these unions. But outside of, uh, you know, Rachel Cohen and uh, Matt Cunningham Cook, and uh, Tim Chirac and, and Josh Idelson, I haven't seen any reporters in the left press take it on in a big way. Dick Jameson as well. And the reason for that, I mean, you, you look at big names. There's, there's all kind of feminist women labor writers who I don't want to name because I know they'll get very upset. <laughs> and they'll make all kind of – and I've criticized them on this in the past – who will look the other way because – they don't want to ruin relationships. We just saw in the New York Times uh, what happened here in Pittsburgh. Michael Foucault, he was the president of the newspaper guild here in Pittsburgh. Um, he hurt his union a lot because he was a serial sexual predator. This was a man who would prey on interns. He would prey. He was an adjunct journalism professor at two local colleges. He would prey on young women and tell them I'll get you jobs and, you know, get them drunk, get them coked up. 
and if they stopped having sex with him, he would he would make sure they didn't get jobs or if they refused his offers. And he got away with this for decades. President of the News Guild. Yeah, in Pittsburgh. Yeah. In Pittsburgh. Let's go into this story a little bit because this is like I think one example of just fantastic reporting that's come out of the payday report. Well, I've covered a lot of union corruption. And what had happened is under labor law, when a contract expires, only after the expiration of a contract, so a contract might last three or four years, only at the expiration of a union contract, only at the expiration of a union contract can you go on strike. The contract of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette had been expired for two years. And they kept doing this weird stuff. You know, we're going to go on a byline strike. Nobody's going to give their byline for a month. And the company was like, okay, who cares? Nobody pays attention to bylines. So this is the News Guild that's doing this. We're still making money off of you. Who cares, right? Uh, And it seemed like it needed to be ramped up. And there was a local reporter, a guy by the name of Foe, uh, runs a site here, who who wrote a story about you know, there's talk of a strike at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. And some reporters have been meeting with Google and the Pittsburgh Foundation talking about launching their own publication and using some of the energy around the strike to build public support for this publication. Immediately, I thought it was very unusual. The leadership of the Pittsburgh News Guild started attacking this reporter online. They said the story was fake news. They had no intention of striking. Now, look, I've covered a lot of contract disputes. I've covered ones where maybe the workers don't have the support to go on strike. But a union leader never comes out and says, we have no intention of striking. That just, you get what I'm saying? That, that never happens unless there's something corrupt going on. And so they had been attacking this guy, attacking this guy. And I said, this is very unusual. So I started making some phone calls, and yeah, everything this guy said was true, but that there were these old, you know, old dinosaurs heading up the union. And so I started poking around, and I found out that the reason there wasn't a strike was because of all the sexual misconduct complaints that had been filed at HR, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, against the union leader over the years. You know, there have been all these accusations, including uh, that he had an out-of-wedlock child with one of his journalism students. <laughs> who later became freelancer at the Post-Gazette, right? So they knew this. They knew this. And so for years, what the union would do is they would cut a good deal for the older people, the younger people with the paper, they would screw over, right? Uh, And that's just the way they did things for years. And then the management changed. And the new management was like, we want to bust the union. And in that corrupt that's been dividing the old workers against the young workers and has a leader who is a serial sexual predator, uh, women told me, that they were afraid to go to union happy hours because he would grope them. He would get drunk. He would get coked up and grope them. So I started hearing that, and I couldn't get any women to go on the record, which isn't unusual uh, in a sexual misconduct case. And so, you know, after a year almost of, of banging my head against the wall on this story, I said, well, you know, I'm a member of the union. I'm going to go foul. I talk, you know, with my, my rabbi about this. I talk with my therapist. And my therapist said, you know, when it comes to sexual violence, like what you're describing, because this guy beat women and stuff like that, you need to report it. Because women won't, because seven times out of ten women face retaliation. And in a union context, you can blame a woman for hurting the union by going public. And that often is what happens, right? Um, you know, too, sadly, we use solidarity and unity to crush dissent and labor. And that happens all the time on sexual misconduct. And part of the reason I think sexual misconduct is so rampant in the labor movement. And so I went to the head of the union, John Slosh, who's part of this new wave of young digital media union leaders, right? We've seen this massive uptick of unions over the last uh, five or six years. Uh, I think it's over 50 different outlets have unionized. It's quite remarkable. Uh, but you have a new generation that they know nothing about how unions operate. <laughs> they don't know how to organize. Uh, and so they let staff run things. And so John Slosh didn't want to upset a potential political uh, adversary in the union. So he did nothing. And I fought him and I fought him for nine months on this. And then finally, we got to the point where my editor, Clarissa Leon, great woman, uh, she's a saint. 
and I had, had talked to about six different women. And then we had talked to about five reporters that all said they had heard the same stories. So we got to the point where we said, you know what, we don't need to put any woman's name on this. I'm the owner of the publication. I know I'm past the libel standards. If they want to sue me, they can do that. And that's one of the benefits of having a small publication. You know, we can be nimble. We can be like a PT boat coming in. Um, and so we winded up uh, publishing the story. We published two stories. And as the New York Times, the New York Times later followed up, Ben Smith did, the feeling of the union, even though the union leader had met with one of these women who had told them stories, the feeling of the union was, you know, and it was quoted in the New York Times, don't worry. Nobody takes Mike Elk seriously. Everybody thinks he's crazy. He was quoted saying that in the New York Times. <laughs> and so then what happened is a woman, uh, I went down to go cover a, a rally here outside the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. And I got, uh, I went up to go ask the national president who was there, John Slosh, uh, what's going on with all this stuff, you know? And, and a union officer, Zach Tanner, who, uh, comes out of a famous family. His grandfather was a World Series winning manager for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and his dad was a coach there, too. Uh, came up and punched me in my ribs. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> Repeatedly. Uh-huh. You know, the way the player did, then came behind me and sort of sucker punched me in my ribs. Fortunately, I had on this big backpack, so he didn't, you know, he, he didn't land it too well. And, uh-huh. and, uh, and, you know, this was partially caught on tape. And, and what wind up happening is, after that, a woman who had all kind of court documents on Foucault mm-hmm. called up the president at Pittsburgh News Guild and threatened to go public with the court documents. At which point, they had to get rid of him. Mm-hmm. You get what I'm saying here? And, yeah. And that only happened because of that. And, and, and what was incredible was, um, you know, the New York Times in December then did a follow-up on the cover-up and occurred and what it said about the digital mediaization movement. And the Times, uh, you know, revealed a lot of things about it. It's, it's a very good story. People should go and read it. It's by Ben Smith. It's, it's up there. Um, and, and what wind up happening is when the story came out, the union retaliated against me. You know, here I was hitting my ribs. Here I was getting threatening emails, mocking me as an autistic Describing how I wish I would die, talking about my family and all kind of just terrible things. Um, and, you know, this guy, Zach Tanner, he's still an officer in the union. <laughs> and this is wild how unions can say, hey, we need to get around unity. And anybody who dissents, we need to speak with one voice. And if we don't speak with one voice, we're going to lose. And that's BS. <laughs> you know, you're allowed to have disagreements and movements. You're allowed to have diversity that creates union democracy that creates accountability where people debate things and you know what wind up happening is then folks came after me and said well mike elk's a harasser (laughs) and i said why did i harass you folks i've never even met you folks we've never spoken on the phone or anything i've sent a few emails over the years i've i've dm some people i've tweeted some criticism of articles at people that was the harassment you know and i said there's a hundred percent of these stories in writing and so what you have is when you have a union leadership that's very top-down, that's very driven by labor intellectuals, that's inexperienced, um, there becomes a big desire to circle the wagons, to protect the institution and not the idea. And I think what happened in the News Guild is a perfect example of the problems of organized labor. And the des- lack of desire of so many people to speak up on it is really emblematic of, you know, look, if you're a rank and file media worker, right, and you're working at Virginia Pilot, right, do you want to speak out against the union president? Good luck getting help if you get fired. And it's a scary, scary, scary situation. You know, you think labor reporter and you think, you know, reporting on issues of labor, meaning, you know, labor being jacked around by, you know, their workplace but it sounds like you spend just as much time dealing with the problems the problematic elements of the labor movement itself totally uh yeah i mean 
my job is to stand up for members. It's not to stand up for union leaders. And I've spoken to so many women. Um, I've spoken to over a dozen women who have been sexually assaulted in the labor movement. I would say the majority of the time, you know, seven times out of ten, women will come to me, they'll have a story, they might have moved on somewhere else, they're a teacher, they're a social worker, or they're doing something else with their lives. And they'll want to go on the record, and they'll, you know, they'll give me all these interviews, and then they'll say, yeah, and then I talked to a couple other women in the union, and we decided it would really hurt the union, I don't want to do that anymore. What does that do to the ability of a union to fight if people are scared to go to union happy hours because they're scared of being groped? That the union that hurts the labor cause and so it's really up to us not just does it hurt the union it gives ammunition to union busters when this stuff when these guys do get in trouble because they always get in trouble arrogancy you know they slip up it gives ammunition to hurt the union so i don't really think you ever help a union by hiding corruption you hurt it and so i having having come out of a background out of the ue where you know, I grew up near Union Switches Signal in Swissville, and you know those guys had fought McCarthyism, they had fought the mob, and they had fought corrupt unions. I had always come out of this view of not all unions are the same. There are bad unions out there, and you have to fight them. So what are you working on right now? Well, today we, we come out with a three-times-a-week newsletter. We want to expand it to five days a week, but we need more funding to do that. Um, we probably you know, we have a small one-and-a-half-person staff. I, I pay a, an editor about $2,000 a month. Um, so we have a story coming out today uh, in Bellevue, Washington. Uh, there are teachers that went out on a sick-out strike, refusing to work in unsafe schools during COVID. And as a result, the school district has said, oh, we're going to hire scab teachers to come in and replace you guys. Wow. Yeah. Um, we have some other stories as well. It looks like there's an oil refinery strike out in Minnesota. That looks pretty interesting. Uh, and... You know, there's a lot happening today. So, uh, you know, we're going to have a lot of stuff. Uh, we're working on a big story uh, also in Minnesota about uh, a, a nurse union shop steward who was fired at the beginning of the pandemic and then winded up training other people in the union uh, to sort of develop new leadership roles and, and what that has meant to them. Uh, and then we're working on uh, um, uh, just so much right now, <laughs> yeah. you know. The great thing about being a labor reporter is, you know, you occasionally get a phone call at like 830 at night from a number you don't know. And then you pick up and it's like, hey, uh, this is uh, Ed Clonklin from uh, St. Paul. I got your number off of these guys that you met back in 2011 at a lockout at Crystal Sugar in North Dakota. You know, you'll get calls like that. I've gotten a bunch of them. And it's always exciting. Um, you know, there's so many stories to cover on the labor beat. And as someone who grew up in a union family, it's really exciting to get to go into these kind of fights. Um, you know, I, I, I love um, the idea of close air support. I often compare good labor reporting to close air support uh, in the sense of if you're really going after a company, right, local newspaper reporters are lazy. Uh, you know, I read a statistic once that there's something like for every murder that happens in the U.S., there's like – one reporter for every seven murders, one crime reporter for every seven murders that and you know, crime reporters cover other things. And there's you know, just a few dozen labor reporters, you know, six thousand workers a year die on the job, another eighty thousand die of occupational diseases. Lots of workers get killed on the job all the time and we just don't cover it. But if you can find a reporter, and I've done this uh, with Honeywell, I've done this with Nissan, I've done this with a number of companies that will go after a company story after story after story after story. Eventually what will happen is, you know, these local reporters, and I'm sympathetic to them. A lot of them are being pushed around on tight deadlines. These local reporters will, um, will, will go around and um, will wind up picking up your reporting. We've seen Payday get picked up by uh, the Mississippi Clarion Ledger. We've seen it picked up by the Tennessean. We've seen it picked up by the Louisville Courier Journal. We've seen it picked up by a number of major outlets across the country. Uh, the New York Times cited us six times in the last year. The Economist cites us. NPR's All Things Considered cites us because we cover stuff nobody else does. And that's what really upsets me about the current state of the left press is it's this debating society. <laughs> You're not going into a fight and saying, you know, like Hunt's Point Market, right? There's a huge strike right now in New York, right? You could probably find a dozen different angles to go after them 
And, and I think we're going to start seeing some more reporting. You know, AOC was out there the other day. She made uh, some viral videos that got several million views uh, and it's starting to get attention. Uh, and we're starting to see more and more of these stories get attention. But lay reporting at its best is not about having some intellectual debate, which I think often left press does. Lay reporting at its best is going in and winning something for workers. Take it away 